The most dangerous place you can be as a trial lawyer is to think you've got it figured out. I'm still trying to get better. I still have the passion for it. I believe in it. Everyone can learn to do what I do. And yet there's a group here that continues to get extraordinary verdicts. Trial Lawyers University is revolutionizing educating lawyers to be better trial lawyers. It's been invaluable to me. Trial Lawyers University, where the titans come to train. Produced and powered by LawPods. All right, we got Craig Peters here today from San Francisco. And, uh, you know, Craig is unknowingly a hero for a lot of people because he went from being a public defender to high, you know, top, you know, plaintiff's lawyer. And that's not an easy transition. But we're going to, you know, kind of learn about that story and, you know, the many civil cases he's done, his kind of overall philosophy on every part of trial from, you know, jury selection to rebuttal. And I'm pretty psyched about this because we spent a lot of hours preparing. And so I got to learn a lot. And now we're going to be able to share that with everybody out here. So, Craig, tell us, where are you at today, Craig? Yeah, currently I'm, I started a firm with some other folks in 2018 called Altair Law. And um, kind of want to try to do things differently from what we saw in the community. One of which was to not name a firm after a bunch of us uh, that had started it, but instead come up with a name that might people's interests, that had a more unifying theme to it than people's names and might also allow for the firm to last longer. So we actually hired a company to help us think of a name and came up with Altair, which is one of the brightest stars in the sky. It's the 12th brightest star. It's part of a really important constellation called Aquinas that navigators, ship na- you know, people on ships way back in the day would use to navigate their way through treacherous seas. And so we like the idea of navigational star. We like the idea of a star that's part of a larger whole, sort of fit what we were trying to do, which was to be collaborators and partners with other folks uh, in their cases, while also providing guidance to our clients to help them navigate stormy seas to get to some better place in their life, hopefully. So that's where the name came from. It actually, it's kind of nice because like you've just done, people say, what's up with the name? And it gives us an opportunity to talk about that. Yeah, I, I did that when I started my first uh, training company called Trojan Horse Method because everybody's like, what's Trojan Horse? I'm like, funny you should ask. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Let me tell you about my company now. I appreciate the invitation to promote myself. So, but you didn't start out as a plaintiff's lawyer. You started out as a public defender and I started out as a criminal defense lawyer, semi-public defender because I had so many cases where I didn't get paid. So, and I, didn't make, and I got paid probably less than most public defenders. And so I'm fighting the man. And so tell us about your public defender career and how you decided to transition away from it. Yeah, I feel like my kind of my life story, at least my work story, has been a number of failed attempts at things I thought I wanted to do. I went to college at a school that produces more uh, med students than any other college in the nation because I wanted to be a doctor and then realized I tend to pass out side of blood. And so that's probably not a great profession. So then I shifted gears and thought, okay, well, I want to do something to help people. And I thought I wanted to be a politician. So I went to law school to be a politician, understand how laws get made, the impact they have on people, realized pretty quickly that I didn't have, again, didn't have the stomach for being a politician and having to try to raise money So I thought, well, I'll just try and help people one at a time. I'll be a trial lawyer. And I had a great job at a really prominent plaintiff's firm here in the city, one of the largest. I've been around forever, really great lawyers there. They'd offered me a summer internship, which was, 
I felt really proud about. And uh, at the time, I was the editor of the newspaper for the law school. We were three weeks from ending the semester, and we were putting out the final edition of the paper. And I got a call from that law firm uh, where they had just they'd had a lot of transition and some new partners, and apparently a bunch of the senior partners had hired people unbeknownst to the partner who was in charge of the summer intern program, and they were oversubscribed. They'd hired too many people. And so he was calling to tell me, felt terrible, but he had to rescind the offer for me to work there that summer. I could work as many hours as I wanted during my third year of law school, but he just literally didn't have space for me at the office. Of course, this was back when remote work was not even a thing. So I had to scramble to find a job. One of my associate editors had just gotten a job at the public defender's office in Contra Costa County, and she said, they are all out of full paid jobs, but if you have work study, they still have jobs available. And I did have work study that I'd gotten through the federal government. So I went and applied, and a couple of weeks later, I had my job, and I don't think I was even a month into that job that summer and was like, I don't know what that other job was like that I missed out on, but this is the job I want to have. I'd been to a crime scene where there were still casings on the ground and blood on the pavement and got to go to San Quentin to interview a witness in a case. I got to argue motions in front of the courts. It was just really exciting and being able to fight for people who were arguably in some of the worst places they'd ever been in their life in terms of, you know, up against the man and the system felt like a really good fit. So that was it. I never, I did go and work my third year at that plaintiff's firm and it was great. I really enjoyed it, but it was all in the office. I didn't get a lot. In fact, I don't think I got any time inside of a courtroom. The goal one when I got out of law school was go work for the public defender's office. I got hired to be a death penalty clerk. If you have a death penalty case that you get extra funds to hire clerks to help you on the case. So I did that while I was waiting for bar results. And then as soon as I was admitted to the bar, they hired me on a one month contract during which they promised they would try to get me out to trial. I took a case to trial that I had seen five previous defense lawyers on it at, in the office. It was a case nobody wanted. It was a kind of a crazy case. And it was a fantastic experience. What was the case about, the crazy case, your first trial? Yeah, so it was about uh, a guy who was, he was arrested for driving under the influence of methamphetamine. He was also arrested for possession for sale of methamphetamine simple possession of methamphetamine, driving on a suspended license. It was a crazy case because there was apparently this guy who was in the parking lot where this whole thing started, who our guy had said it was his car. He had been given this car by this guy. And this guy was, I can't even remember now, he had some moniker like Safeway Eddie or something like that. There was a Safeway in the parking lot. I can't remember what his name was. And we could never find this guy. You know, other public defenders had tried to locate this guy. Nobody could find him. And so anyhow, that but that was the that was part of the defense. And it was hilarious because the judge that I had in that case was a longtime resident of Martinez, which is where this incident had happened. And we're sitting in his chambers and he's being really gracious and kind of giving me some pointers of what he thought had gone right and what he thought I could do better in and areas to improve. And he said, yeah, and I, you know, let's say the guy was name was Safeway Eddie. I don't think that was it, but it was something like that. He says, yeah. And why didn't you bring in Safeway Eddie? I'm like, well, we could never find him. I mean, I don't even know if the guy exists. He goes, oh no, he exists. I know who that guy is. <laughs> <laughs> so my own judge, it turns out I could have called as a witness. That was the beginning of what I thought would be a lifelong career. I, I just loved it. I, yeah, I was in Contra Costa for three years trying cases. I not only did tons and tons of misdemeanors. In fact, 
in February of 1999, I tried four misdemeanor cases in the month of February in Walnut Creek, which is a really harsh place to work as a public defender. Uh, there's almost no crime. So driving on a suspended license <laughs> is like, you know, the crime of the century. And I had a, you know, at the time I was appearing in front of, they have three judges there. One whose name is Judge Mills, who was brought up on misconduct charges. He ended up uh, resigning his seat before those got adjudicated. Judge Van Voorhees, who was brought up on misconduct charges and was actually removed from his seat. And then Judge Eaton, who was a former cop, former prosecutor, and really into Mickey Mouse, had Mickey Mouse stuff everywhere in his chambers. So really interesting characters that I was having to deal with every day that were kind of, one was crazy, that was Van Voorhees, one was a misogynist, that was Mills, and then one was like a real kind of by the book sort of guy, and that was Eaton. And so anyhow, so I, you know, I ended up trying over 100 cases as a public defender before I left. And most of those, I'd say probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 to 80 of them were misdemeanor cases. I just tried case after case after case. Slept at the office a lot because I was living in San Francisco, but working in Contra Costa County. I actually also worked on what's called the Lantern and Petra Short Act cases, LPS cases. So these are people who are trying to be permanently conserved because they either are a danger to themselves, they're a danger to others, or they can't provide for their own food, clothing, or shelter. And that's due to some kind of mental illness. So they're schizophrenic, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar, what have you. So I would represent those folks. And those were actually civil proceedings. And I did 10 of those cases. I tried 10 of those to verdict. So anyhow, it was a great, great experience that I probably would have stayed in Contra Costa for my whole career. But I got a call out of the blue from a guy named Jeff Adachi, who at the time was the number two at the San Francisco Public Defender's Office. He was trying to remake that office into a more aggressive, better funded public defender office. And he offered me a job. And how could I say no to somebody who wanted that as their goal? I loved going to trial. It was to be able to work in my own backyard and uh, had a long career with Jeff, uh, who was an amazing mentor, amazing trial lawyer, and really an amazing administrator. He is, San Francisco office is really the model, I think, for every other public defender office in the nation in terms of the resources that he brought to it. Got us a whole stable of paralegals that we'd never had before, revamped our investigations unit, created a whole new computer software system for us. We did trial training. Jeff ultimately made me into the director of training for the office. So I had the great honor and privilege and pleasure really of being able to train all the brand new attorneys. So I sent them, I created a one week trial skills training program for them. But as importantly, I got to work with the really senior attorneys and we brainstorm and develop themes and theories for cases and investigation plans and all while still getting to try cases myself. So I had my own caseload still. It was a great job. I definitely identify as a public defender. I still do. Even after I became a civil lawyer, I still told people I was a public defender, not because I was trying to lie, but just because how I saw myself and sort of thought this whole civil thing would be a temporary gig to see if I could do it. But here I am now, I don't know, 15 years later. <laughs> okay. Well, you spent your first 13 years at public defender's office between Contra Costa and San Francisco. And so right. how do you think those experiences really helped you become know, the trial lawyer you are today, because so many people get advice, you know, fresh out of law school, join the prosecutor's office. I'm like, I would think that's a crappy idea because it's like, it's too easy. 
I mean, what happened next? Everything's in your favor. You don't learn how to pick yourself off the ground. You don't learn how to get your ass kicked and have to like stand up, get in the mirror and say, I can do this. You're not a loser. Just because you lost 10 cases in a row, you're not a loser. You can do this. So how do you think that experience helped you really become you know, the trial lawyer you are today? It's true. I think being a prosecutor is a little bit easier in some regards. Having said that, I know some really good prosecutors who are really good trial lawyers uh, who have made the transition to civil. But it is different. I mean, on the defense side, particularly when I started, you're your own clerk, you're your own you know, writing person, you're your own research person, you're your own investigator. You're, I mean, you do, it, you do it all. I mean, I spent a lot of time, a lot of my own time in all of the different areas of San Francisco where the projects are, because that's where a lot of my clients were coming from. That's where I'd find witnesses. And so trying to think creatively, I mean, it forces you, right? There's, you really only have two options. One is just take what you're given between what your client says and what the DA hands over to you and try to make some kind of defense out of that, which is largely going to fail. Or you get creative and you think of new ways to approach a problem. And so I think more than anything else, what the, those years of being a public defender, what they gave me was a perspective of looking at a case, trying to look at a case differently than, you know, than other people might. And I think that's held true kind of throughout. And to be perfectly frank, this idea of you lose a lot, it's a hard job you, and you got to get good at losing, which means, at least in my mind, the best public defenders were the ones who were torn up, devastated by their losses and then could move on. Right. So you kind of have to hold these two different thoughts at the same time. There's, there's plenty of ones that they're not that torn up about it. And I don't know that those are particularly good public defenders. And then there's the ones who care too much and they burn out uh, and can't continue. So there's kind of a, I acknowledge I probably got a weird personality defect that makes that a good fit for me that allows me to do it. But I, I appreciate it because, I mean, <laughs> the first civil trial I had there was a point at which after Vordier was done and before I was giving my opening statement where I was like, nobody's going to go to prison at the end of this thing. Nobody's going to prison. My client's either going to get fairly compensated and still be injured or they're not going to get compensated and still be injured. They're not going to be worse off after this trial. I'm either going to make the life measurably better or they'll be in the same spot they were before. That was never the case or rarely was it the case when I was a public defender in terms of my clients, in my best day, I get a not guilty. What do they go home to? Most of them go home to an environment that is more likely than not going to send them right back into the system. They're still going to be worried about how to put food on the table, roof over their head. If they're ever going to get a job that's decent, if they're going to be able to keep that job, if they're going to get shot. I mean, that's what I was sending them back to. So, that perspective, right? Like I have, I talk with a lot of my colleagues that are in this business now and it's hard to tell somebody like, relax, like everything's going to be fine. You know, they get really kind of worked up about their case and about what the outcome is going to be. And it's hard if you've only ever been in this world, that is important. And it's important to me. Certainly it's important. My client's need is what I want to serve. I want to get them what they need, but it's different when the frame through which you see a case is that nobody's going to prison at the end. That's a big deal. It's a little less stress. But when we were getting preparing for this uh, podcast and just shooting the shit, 
Yeah, I asked you about, you know, the, your three most memorable cases. And what did you tell me? Yeah, there's, um, and they're actually, you can see, I'm kind of redoing my office. So they're not actually hanging right now, but they're in the other room in frames about to get rehung in this office. I have the three verdicts from my public defender days um, where I lost. And they're the cases that haunt me. To Just be clear, you, you lost more than three cases, but these are the three cases where you believed your clients were innocent and you still lost. Is that correct? All my clients were innocent. Okay. These were the three cases where I felt like I had these clients suffered a judicial wrong that was not rectified by the system that either the jury had failed to follow the standard to be on a reasonable doubt, or they'd just been so inflamed with passion or prejudice that they couldn't get over that to give a honest look at the facts. And, you know, I take responsibility for that. That was my job. I was the only thing standing between my client and a prison cell and I failed and I can't do anything about that. Right. That feels really horrible. So I keep those on my wall to remind me of the importance that making sure you've turned over every stone, you've done everything possible on a case to make sure that you get the right outcome for your client. And there are going to be times when it's not going to happen, but I sure don't want to go to bed at night thinking that there was something that was left undone that I didn't do. No, I know that. Like, I think, uh, you know, I relate to that feeling. I mean, I don't have the courage to put their names and the uh, documents where I see them every day because... You know, trying to you know, spend a few months not sleeping too well and trying to get these people's faces out of my mind. And you finally get out of it. And, you know, I realized it's like, I remember after I lost the last criminal trial that I lost. And, and I just remembered I was so down. I was so depressed. I was like, I either got to get over it, quit the practice of law, or jump off a fucking bridge. And just got to get past it. You just, it, whatever it is, whether it's trying to serve others, trying to help others to make sure this doesn't happen again to somebody else, or learning how to forgive yourself is... It's not always so easy. It's easier. Well, it's easier said than done. But uh, after 13 years, you decided to shift and to become a plaintiff's lawyer. So that's pretty unusual because most people that have been a public defender for that many years are lifers. You know, just so used to the government benefits that, you know, they're making, you know, six figures and they got it all set up now and, and they're used to the system. So tell us about what inspired you to make that move. Yeah. So I don't know if there was inspiration so much as desperation. I was a lifer. I fully expected to be a public defender for the rest of my life. I loved the job. As I mentioned, I had been the director of training and I had been doing that job for, I think it was three years, might've been four. And unlike, you know, when you work in a public defender's office, you get your caseload and it's yours, you manage it. And Nobody's checking to see if you're in the office or not, or if you're out in the field doing the work. It's, it's all very results-based. Are you getting the right results for your clients? And so you have a lot of autonomy over your time in terms of how you allocate it. And the difference between that role and being the director of training was there was a high importance on me physically being in the office to be available for people. Because again, we, this was pre-remote working times. So that was fine for a long time, but there was a point at which I, I kind of wanted some of that autonomy back. I wanted more cases. I wanted more opportunities to try cases. And so I was thinking about not giving up the director of training position and just going back to being a felony line deputy. 
but I was also kind of wondering, like, is this, is this all I'm capable of? Is there, is there anything else in this world that I can do while using the skills that I've developed and doing things that I love, which included doing trials? So, and, you know, I had received a, a call about a month prior from a firm completely out of the blue. It was a firm that law school colleague of mine worked at, and she and I had serendipitously just run into each other at a coffee shop across from the Hall of Justice when she was on jury duty. We hadn't seen each other in forever, and she was asking me about my practice and how many cases I tried and whether I liked trying cases and wanted to continue, and then said, you know, would you ever consider doing civil? And I said, eh, I don't think so. I'm pretty happy. And she goes, well, did you consider? I'm like, well, I don't know. I mean, I consider anything, but I'm probably pretty happy where I am. So anyhow, she had put my name into that firm that was looking for folks specifically just to try cases. It was a firm that did toxic torts, primarily asbestos-related cases, uh, mesothelioma cases. So they called and said, hey, we got your name and we've talked to some people who know you and we're interested in you coming in for a, an interview uh, to lead one of our trial teams. And I said, oh, wow, that's kind of flattering and thanks, but you know, no thanks, I'm happy. So anyhow, a month later, I sort of having this midlife crisis and I'm not, I think, as I told you, as a male, I think you, a heterosexual male, you kind of have three options when you have a midlife crisis. It's either you start dating some younger woman, you go buy a sports car, or you change jobs. And uh, I like my wife and not really into cars, so that just left changing jobs. And she was the one who's like, well, why don't you call those people back and see what they have to say? So I did. And anyhow, I ended up working uh, for Paul and Hanley, an asbestos firm in Berkeley. And you know, it was just a whole different world. It was like you know, the public defender's office, if you wanted an expert and they cost $5,000, it was like you had to really work hard and prove why you needed that money and that expert. And, you know, and then I go to a place where you're spending tens of thousands of dollars on experts on the regular <laughs> and nobody bats an eye and going to these conferences where, you know, there's these amazing meals and stuff, whereas like you went to two conferences in a year as a public defender, that was a huge deal. It was a big change, but it was great. I mean, I all I didn't have to do any of the litigation work. The cases just came baked as they were, and that was the case I had. My first trial was down in San Diego. Not only was trying a case, you know, it was great walking into the courtroom and it's like, wait, I actually get to sit next to the jury now, as opposed to away from the jury. The firm had lined up a, a jury consultant for me. And so Carol Bowes from the National Jury Project was there. And I was like, so somebody's going to like be there to like bounce ideas off of as to who the good jurors are and who the bad. And she's going to take notes on all this for me. I don't have to do anything. It's like, oh my God, this is amazing. Judge Taylor was my judge down in San Diego, who's kind of renowned. He always wears a bow tie. He's a real kind of taskmaster, strict guy. And he and I have actually stayed in touch because he, has an unusual system where you voir dire the entire panel at one time. So all, in our case, all 81 jurors are seated in order. So the person in the back right corner is the 81st juror. Juror number one is sitting in the jury box. And you voir dire all of them. And it takes about a day and a half. But when you're done, all you have left is you do your causes. And then it's peremptories. And you just run through your peremptories. And you know exactly who's coming. And I'm actually a big proponent of it. I think it's a great system. But anyhow, he and I stay in touch over that shared uh, love of that system. And he's written some articles about it. But I, I tried cases in L.A. I spent like 260 some odd days in 
can't remember what year it was in LA at the Omni hotel because I was in trial. So much. that wasn't one case. That was a whole bunch of cases, but it was like, you know, trial after trial after trial, which I loved. I didn't love being away from home that much. Um, that got a little old. And so eventually I, I transitioned and went to the Veeam firm at the time was looking for somebody to lead one of their trial teams. So I transitioned. to Veeam. And how long did you spend with the Veeam firm? I was with the Veeam firm for, I think it was just over six years, I think. Yeah. Maybe almost seven, something, somewhere in that neighborhood. And it was great. It was a great experience. It was a great opportunity to kind of get my hands dirty with the litigation side of things and managing people and selecting cases and, you know, having to do budgets. Basically, you're, when you're a trial team leader in their system, at least the system they used to have, it's almost like you were running a little law firm within the greater law firm. You know, you did all your own hiring and firing and sending of salaries and picking the cases and, and all of that. So that was another great learning experience for me to be able to make that transition. And this guy, Kevin Lancaster, who is an amazing lawyer and had been there forever and was in some ways kind of the, the brains of, the, I mean, Bill Veen is an amazing lawyer, incredible trial attorney, but I think Kevin Lancaster was sort of the brains of the operation. You know, he just was this very, he, he always felt like the professor. He was the guy you went to if you had some thorny legal issue and Kevin had some health issues. And so I had to transition out. And so to be able to work with Kevin and, just kind of be in his presence was a huge, huge honor and a huge learning experience for me that I think really also helped make me a better civil lawyer, as well as working with a lot of, he had a lot of young attorneys, his own daughter, Anoush was there and Kimberly Wong, who is now practicing at the Cooper firm. It was great. I learned a ton. I hope they feel the same way that they learned and everybody, I think, felt like they did well. We somehow managed our way through and managed to keep the thing afloat and make money and and there was just a point in time when I thought, well, I've worked for a public entity. I've worked for a private entity. Uh, I've done criminal. I've done civil. I've done trials in both. Kind of the only thing I haven't done is I haven't owned a law firm yet. So I'm going to do it probably now is the time. And that was when I decided, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to go try and start a firm. See how that works out. So that was in 20, that was Groundhog Day, February 2nd, 2018. Wow. So you just had your five-year anniversary a couple of days ago. We did. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. And, you know, and I know you've had a, uh, it's got to joke around a little bit. Now. I'm like, you're like probably the best lawyer most people have never heard of. <laughs> you know, lawyers are really known to brag about the results, but you don't do much of that. And I know like recently, because you have, you have, we have um, two webinars scheduled, you know, case analysis webinars. We're going to, on March 12th, we're going to talk about the Cooper trial. So why don't you give us a, a quick overview of the Cooper trial that's going to be happening March 12th. Sure. Uh, yeah. So Cooper was a, John Cooper was our client, is our client. Once a client, I was a client. He was at a 24-hour fitness with his wife and his son. It was Christmas Eve of 2015, I think it was. And they were just kind of getting ready for the holidays. They'd all gone to the gym together, just have a casual workout. And there was this machine called an upper body ergometer, which you sort of turn with your hands as opposed to with your feet. And it's for people who have core issues or lower body issues and they can't get cardio any other way. This is kind of for that purpose. So it's not a super highly used machine. Uh, and so they just decided they'd have this fun little game to see who could turn them the fastest, who can get the highest RPMs. And so his wife went, his son went. They both are about the same height. John's a big guy. He's a general contractor, has been his whole life. 
When you say a big guy, what do you talk? Tall, heavy? I think John is like 6'2 and probably weighs 280. That's a big guy. Okay. Something like that. All right. He's a big, big guy. guy. Yeah. So he sits in the seat and he's too close to the handle. So there's a little lever underneath the handle that he uses to try to slide the seat back. And when he pulls up the lever, the seat shoots all the way off the back of the machine. He falls, hits his head. He's dizzy. He's actually down. You know, he sort of stays on the ground for about 15 minutes, which is a long time for somebody after they've fallen. His wife is actually an ER nurse. And so she kind of kept him there. And eventually they took him to the ER. They said, yeah, you probably got a concussion. Go see your general practitioner as soon as you can after the holidays. So four or five days later, he goes to his general practitioner, says, you know, man, my back and neck kind of hurt. They send him to physical therapy. He does okay in physical therapy, but eventually, about a year and a half later, they decide they're going to need to do a cervical fusion. So keep in mind, this is a guy. So at the time, he was 70 when this incident happened. When we actually went to trial on this case, he was 78. He's been a general contractor his whole life, right? So his back isn't great. He's had lots and lots of treatment for his back over the years prior to this incident. So they do the cervical fusion, and then about three years after the incident, they do a lumbar fusion. And so the argument was whether these things were related to this fall or not. And they thought they severely undervalued it. I thought they had a $5 million policy. We also, one of the reasons it took so long, eight years to get from injury to trial was not only did COVID happen in there, but then 24 Fitness, who was one of our defendants, declared bankruptcy, as some people may recall. And so that stayed the whole case for almost a year. And yeah, we had lots of, lots of issues, lots of hurdles we had to get over, but not the least of which was they just were never willing to put any real money on it. We probably could have penciled out about seven or $800,000 in economics, about 300-ish, which would have been passed in another four to 500, maybe a little, we maybe could have squeezed that a little bit higher in the future. But my feeling was we just need to get rid of all the econs are dragging us down. And so we just proceeded on a purely a non-economic uh, loss theory with the jury. And you got a pretty significant verdict from what I recall you telling me. Yeah, we got a good verdict. The jury compensated John uh, $15 million for his past non-economic loss and $25 million for his future non-economic loss. They also found malice against the Technogym was the name of the company that produced the machine. So they found malice against the company. And then we had served a 998 previously, uh, many, many years earlier. So we had about $15 million in 999 interest that was also pending. And so after the trial, you were able to get it resolved prior to appeal? Yeah. So we got the verdict on uh, on April 3rd, which I'll never forget because it's actually the day before my birthday. And we were scheduled to go forward on the punies trial, the damages for the punitives on my birthday on April 4th. And so when we got the verdict on the 3rd, yeah, I had a couple of concerns. One was that, you know, there might be a remitted or we, we had not, we had a judge in Alameda that is not highly sought after by plaintiff's lawyers. Let's put it that way. And so there was some concern that, you know, he might issue a remediator. Also, John was 78 and not in great health, and we were worried about him dying. So we worried about getting paid before an appeal was over and all the rest of it. So we had said to them, if you pay the $40 million within 30 days, and both the insurer and the defendant sign the agreement as being jointly and severally responsible for that payment, then we'll waive the $15 million. We won't go forward on punies, but you have to... You have to give us a signed copy in the morning by 8.30 on the 4th uh, in order to for the deal to be done. Otherwise, we're going to 
where we are going to go forward in puny. So they asked for an extension. They asked for a reduction. They asked for confidentiality. They asked for all kinds of stuff. Um, generally think of myself as a pretty reasonable guy, but the answer was no to all of it. So I've already given you your discount and we're not going to unwind what we've already done publicly in a courtroom and try to make it confidential. And so they paid the 40 million 30 days later. Yeah, that's a hell of a result. So we're talking about that case on March 12th and it's on, you know, Travelers University uh, virtual. But if you can't make it, everything's recorded. And I know you'll get us like the transcripts, please, in PowerPoint for the case. Yep. And if you can't make it, everything will be on TLU On Demand, which is also an app for your smartphone. So that way you can be learning and getting downloaded lots of knowledge and case information wherever you ask. So now there's no excuse not to keep learning. And then on April 25th, we're going to do the Loggerville trial. And I know that's a case that's very close to your heart. So give us a little overview of that case. Lagervale was probably one of the most gratifying cases I've ever done as a former public defender. This was a civil rights case that I got brought into where a mom and her two daughters were detained by police, really with no good reason. Uh, They certainly didn't have probable cause, reasonable suspicion or anything else. They just, they were black. And that was the only reason. And so they were the, the mom and the two daughters were each detained in the back of three different, each were in their own police vehicle in the back seat, handcuffed for just over 50 minutes. Uh, and then finally, uh, a more level-headed sergeant arrived on scene, kind of took stock of what was going on, went and talked to each of them and had each of them released and they went on their way. And so they, we brought a, a suit against them for violation of their civil rights of the Lagervale civil rights and had a jury. We were lucky. I mean, we were in federal court where it has to be unanimous. You don't get a lot of ordeer, but we had jurors that understood the sort of the breadth and the depth of the impact of racism, both overt racism, as well as the racism that happens unconsciously. And I think finally fairly got just compensation for people who have been suffering this kind of indignity and civil rights offense for years and years and years, but they've just never been fairly compensated or or maybe even fairly valued. I mean, in fairness, when I paneled this case with other lawyers, other plaintiff lawyers, other defense lawyers, (laughs) they didn't value it. They valued it differently. That's right. So what was the final verdict of that case for these three individuals? So they compensated each of them uh, $2.75 million for mom and then the oldest daughter and the youngest daughters total 8.25 million pretty solid result all right looking forward to that one too because civil rights and police misconduct is a place pretty close to my heart since uh yeah you know i was a criminal defense lawyer for 18 years and really the first civil trial i did in los angeles was a civil rights case was like a kind of a police brutality and and we got a hundred thousand dollars plus you know a trade fee so as a criminal defense lawyer that's more money i've ever seen before or you know yeah I think my share of the fee was like $30,000 for like two weeks of work. I was like, shit, that's like six months of work with my old job. This is great. <laughs> I think I'm going to like the civil stuff. A little more yeah. similar battles, especially with lying cops. I mean, once you're a public defender, criminal defense lawyer, that's kind of become a specialty with dishonest police officers. Now, most of them are pretty decent. Well, and they have dishonest police officers sitting at the table furthest from the jury as well. Again, it, particularly like in a federal courtroom, it just feels better. Right. Yes, I know. <laughs> Holding them accountable, the power. Yeah. I remember after winning that case to the cop, who was like the main perpetrator, after he's come up, he's like, 
nice job. Congratulations. I'm like, dude, I just publicly humiliated you, but I appreciate your competition, but the sad thing is it's just a game to you. This has nothing to do with right and wrong or just, this is like, I outgamed you and, and you're being a, a, a man, a, a mensch about it being like, congrats, you know, anyways, it was, anyways, let's, let's talk about trial now. Voir dire. So give us, you've been doing this for a while now. You said you just crossed over doing more time as a plaintiff's lawyer than you were as a public defender. And so that's a very, very unique combination of experiences. But speaking of civil trial, what is your philosophy on voir dire? Yeah, so in voir dire, I've always been a proponent of deselection. We're not, I'm not really trying to root out my best jurors. I'm trying to find my worst jurors. I'm trying to find ways to give them permission to tell me the information that's going to help me know that they're not going to be a good juror for me. Again, that's a, that's a remnant of my public defender days. I, I feel like probably in criminal defense, they were doing this long before this became a thing in civil. I know when I first came over to civil, there was, it felt like this movement was new to, as opposed to trying to inculcate or convince jurors of your case. Like we, I was never doing that in criminal. I was, that was a recipe for disaster. I just needed to find the people that were inclined towards the police, towards the prosecution and trying to build credibility, right? Not being afraid of bad facts. So that just continued on when I came to civil. I'm, I'm looking for the people who, as I like to tell them, who think like my uncle. I have an uncle who's a cowboy and I grew up hanging out with him and being on his ranch. And he's the kind of guy who, if he got hurt and it was somebody else's fault, he'd just be like, you know what? That just happens. That's how life is. Life sucks sometimes. And, but you just pick yourself up by your bootstraps and you move on and you don't bring lawsuits. You just deal with it. Who feels like my uncle? And people respond to that. I've given them permission to give me that information that makes them not sound like a, an asshole. It's real. It's true. And that gets the conversation going for me to find out more and more bad information. I, I, there was a time at the PD's office where people are like, how did you get so many people off for cause? And they thought that there was some secret sauce. There wasn't any secret sauce beyond just being open and accepting of that bad information. And so we actually ended up doing lots of trainings within the office on how to do that because it kind of goes against your nature, right? It's like they're saying bad things that hurt your client and your case. That feels wrong, except here's the good news. They're not going to be on your jury. So you've got to allow them to do all that. And the good news in addition to they're not going to be on your jury is all the people on the jury who don't think like that are getting pushed even further in the direction you'd like them to go because they find discussion distasteful, uncomfortable, whatever it might be. So it's kind of this changing your mental state about this information and trying to be accepting of it as opposed to being resistant to it. And it's hard. I think it's hard. But it just takes practice. It takes practice. When you first stand up in front of that jury and then the judge is like, Mr. Peters, would you like to wadir their question the jury like no judge i'm good with what you did but obviously not so when you first stand up there what is your opening moves phrases to get that connection rolling with them yeah i mean it, again kind of depends on the judge and how good they are at their voir dire and their sort of priming the jury i find most judges aren't terribly good although there's there's certainly some exceptions to that and assuming they aren't good then 
I make clear from the very beginning that this is the only time that we're going to get to talk with one another, where they're actually going to get to say something to me. And the mornings when we see each other, if they're on the jury, like we're not even allowed to say, you know, good morning, how's it going, right? We don't get to talk to each other. So this is it. And now that we're using mini openings on the regular, I try to sort of jump right into, you heard these mini openings, who here has sort of a leaning right now as you sit here, just based on what you heard in the mini opening, one way or the other, right? Because everybody does, right? You can't hear something. And I love people who say like, oh, I'm neutral. I, I don't know if I'm for Biden or I'm from Trump. It's like bullshit. You're, <laughs> you're leaning one way. You, you may not have made a decision, but you're leaning one way or another, right? So I try to right out of the gate show them like, I want to hear from you. I want to spend less time talking and I want you to spend more time talking. And I'm simply going to be the Phil Donahue of this production, passing the microphone around to get everybody's information out. And again, to give them permission that we're all going to be completely honest here. And we're all going to agree that whatever somebody says, we're not going to judge them for it. We're going to thank them for it because they're giving us their honest feelings about something, which is the only thing we have to go on to try and figure out how to get a jury of people who sort of sit in the middle on this case. Some people might be better on another case, and that's fine. No problem. But we need to get the information so we know that this is not the right kind of case for you. So what's your feelings about having your client present for a voir dire? So again, I don't, I don't really have any hard and fast rules on, on just about anything. But as a general proposition, I don't want my clients at voir dire. I feel like it could potentially be an impediment to jurors being open and honest with me about their feelings. I do want them to see my client. So generally speaking, I always ask for my client to be there when the panel comes in and will introduce them to the jury when the judge does, you know, sort of the general introductions before she goes into questioning and picking names and all that. And frequently I will then, after my, I've introduced my client, I'll walk with my client to the back of the courtroom, escort them out, go back to counsel table and take it from there. And the reason I want them physically present at some point is because I do want to hear from the jurors if they had some impressions of my client, particularly if we're talking about an injury case. So John Cooper, who we mentioned earlier, is a good example. John Cooper can walk. John Cooper walks around. He drives around. He still runs his business. So I want them to see that. I want them to know that when we're doing voir dire so that they can be honest with me about how they feel about those facts. And whether they might have some prejudice against him and the extent of his injuries because he's still walking, he's still driving, and he's still working. So let's talk about money now. How do you talk about, you know, like let's say the John Cooper case where you're asking for a lot of money. So how did you talk about money in that particular case? And are you talking about at the end or beginning or always? No, uh, in void here. Yeah. Oh, okay. Got it. How you frame the money issue. I know some judges in California won't like to mention a specific number, but... You know, if they do and if they don't, how do you handle it? My philosophy is I want to get the number out as early as possible. So I try to put it into my mini opening. And then that becomes the vehicle by which I talk about it in voir dire. You heard me tell you how much this case is valued at. Some people would say, that seems like a crazy amount of money. I could never compensate somebody with that much money. Anybody here feel that way? My uncle would feel that way. Anybody else? And get them to raise their hand and talk about why and start to have a conversation about money and conversation about economic 
or what I call pocketbook losses versus non-economic or what I call personal losses, right? So some people say pocketbook losses, I can worth those all day long. Personal losses, those are too uncertain, too hard to quantify. I don't think people ought to be compensated for it. I think that's a fair opinion. I, I don't think it's a right opinion, but I think it's fair for people to feel that way based on their own personal philosophy, upbringing, et cetera, the way they see the world. And I just want them to feel free to share that with me because that's going to be the greatest impediment to my client getting full and fair compensation. So that's my mini opening. I'm telling them the number in Bordier. I'm asking them, how do you feel about that? Okay. So not everybody has mini openings. I know we do in California. I know Nevada does. So for, for those states that have mini openings, what is your philosophy on the mini opening? And so just the mini opening is typically what, three to five minutes? Yeah. So for me, the mini opening is all of my bad facts crammed into a three minute rendition. So anything that I think is going to be a, you know, a, a point that might trigger somebody that might cause my case to potentially fail. I want those all in the mini opening because I want the jury. So there's two things I get out of that. One is I get jurors to grab onto those things and tell me how they would be prejudiced against my client because of those facts. That's good. That helps me with my cause challenges, number one. Number two, it tells all the jurors, my bad jurors, my good jurors, and everybody in between, I'm not afraid of the facts. Facts are the facts. I'm going to be level with you. I'm not going to run away from any facts. That doesn't mean I won't explain a fact, but I'm going to talk about it. If I have the judge that says it can come in because it's relevant, we're talking about those facts. So I want to get those out early because... The earlier you get it out, and the more you talk about it, the less power the fact has. And that, that goes for the number as well. So my number is going to come out in my mini opening. I don't get a mini opening, which doesn't, can't happen anymore in California. We're entitled to it by law. But there was a time when we weren't. And in, during those times, I'm talking about a board here. This is the kind of case where I'm going to be asking for a minimum of a million and a half dollars for every year that John's been injured. He's been injured for 17 years. Right. So that comes out to, I don't know, somewhere in the neighborhood of twenty five million dollars. Some people say that's more money than I'll ever see in my lifetime. I can never compensate somebody with that. Who feels that way? So I'll just tie it into my questions. And I think the real challenge in Bordier is making your questions have the lead up and the question be as tight as possible one, it's clear, but two, it's preserving whatever time you have as much as possible for their words and not your words, right? So it's only as many words as you need to get them to start talking about the topic. And that's really hard, particularly when it's topics we don't feel comfortable with. And I'm always surprised at how many plaintiff's lawyers don't seem comfortable talking about money. Almost all of them, I feel like I can't remember anybody who's not comfortable talking about economics. But when it comes to talking about non-economics, the personal losses, I can sense in them that they feel uncomfortable with it. And man, you can't ask a jury for something that you don't believe in yourself. And so I think that's actually a big part of the lift is trying to get internalize your clients, everything, their pain, their inconvenience, the way they look at the world in the morning when they wake up because of their experience. And trying to convert that into a dollar number that seems fair. And I, I'm a big fan of this was a job. Would you take this job? 
get to sleep in your own bed anymore. You got to sleep elevated. You can't golf. You can't fish. You can't do the things with your kid you used to love to do. You can't do your job in the way you used to do. Every day you have a pain, you have pain of a three out of 10 at a minimum. Most days it goes up to a six or a seven and some days an eight, right? And for that job, you take that job. Those are the job requirements. That's what you're going to experience. We're going to pay a million and a half a year. Or you take nothing and you get your old life back. Nobody takes that job. So if nobody takes that job, including your client, your client says, keep your million and a half a year. Well, that we've now established a reasonable number, a fair and reasonable number for the value of the non-economic damages. It's a million and a half because we know nobody's going to take that number. I acknowledge lots of people that's, that may not resonate with them. So they have to come at it from a different angle. But all of us have to find, if we're asking for numbers, the full and fair value of our clients' personal losses, we got to figure out how we get there in a way that makes us feel convinced of it to our very core. Because if we're not, somebody on that jury is going to sense it, if not all of them, and they're going to undercompensate your client. I think that's the hard work in this job. It is the hard work. And, and it's the work that, you know, so many people, I guess, steer away from, but need to do because if it's always delivering the number, you know, if there's a stutter or anything like that, you're pretty much jacked because say anything, it shows a lack of belief, convincing yourself. And I know a lot of folks have used a friend of mine, John Campbell, doing, you know, those big data studies. So he questions 500 people and, you know, gives a set of facts and they come back with $30 million. Now that lawyer's like, you know, I mean, sometimes that's what it takes to get over the hump. I mean, I know several people have gotten their first eight-figure verdicts because they got this survey and now they can really believe because it's something outside of their own. I mean, the people at the top of the game, however, you come with a number, you can believe in it. And, and that's all you need. You don't need some third outside source, but a lot of people do. And it's like, whatever you need to get there, it's like, you got to find that resource to get there because you got to get there for those clients or else you're not going to, you're not going to get them full justice. It's just the reality of it. Yeah. And Campbell's great. DeNova is great. I use lots, I'm a big fan of the big data surveys. I think they're really, really helpful. Yeah. And like, you know, Sean Clagg, a buddy of mine here in Vegas, he's been crushing it these days and he does these things on every case and yeah. it's really helped him, you know, refine the case and stuff. So let's talk about opening statement now and how you approach opening statement. Yeah, so I, and again, this kind of is a, a lot of the habits I built in my years as a public defender just by nature, not, I don't think I, I wasn't consciously thinking like, oh, I should do this the same way. I just kind of did it the same way, which was I always started my cases at the end, right? So I start with the verdict form in Criminal, we didn't typically have special verdict forms. We had general verdict guilty forms. Guilty and not guilty. We have a real short verdict form. Yeah. One question. I've given a talk to public defender's office saying, you should do special verdict forms, right? You should make it as hard as possible on the jury to get to guilty. And the way to do that is make them answer every single element of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt and have to check yes. Have you had any success in that? Having a special verdict form in a criminal case? No. Okay. But we should have them. But it seems like it'd be part of your closing argument, though, to breaking it down and say, before you get here, you got to go through this process because that's the process you have right. to go through with each and every element. When I was doing criminal defense work, I was doing it with the jury instruction. But how much more effective would it be if I was actually doing it with the verdict form, which would look like the jury instruction? It would just have each of those elements with a line. Right. So I do essentially the same thing in my civil cases now. I start with 
I try to craft what I think the verdict form should look like and will look like. And I want to get that established early and up front with the judge when I start a case. So the last thing the judge wants to do is deal with a verdict form. They want to talk about the witness list and the exhibit list and all that crap, which is all crap. It's the only thing that matters is what the jury's going to say on that form. And that's where we should start. And of course, I always hear like, well, you know, Mr. Peters, we don't, you know, we don't know what the evidence is yet, so we can't craft it. It's like, yes, we do. This is civil case. You know what we do in civil case? We do discovery, unlike in a criminal case where like you got no depots and you don't get any interrogatories and right. We know exactly what's going to happen in this case. And we know that this product case is like the millions of product cases that have come before. We know what those questions are. Let's finalize it. And then we all know where we're headed at the end. I will admit I have maybe 20% success rate in that endeavor, but the process nevertheless is still the same for me. I've got that verdict form that I believe is going to be the final verdict form. That is what then, that's the lens through which I then view and design my closing argument. And my closing argument is basically flipped on its head to become my opening. So I am trying to tell the jury at the very beginning just imagine, I think sometimes we forget, we have people who come in from the public, 95% of the time, they're not lawyers, they don't know the first thing about law, and they're sitting in a courtroom, and we're putting witnesses on a stand to give them evidence, and we're expecting them to know what evidence is important and what evidence is not important, remember it through the whole trial, and then be able to use that evidence at the end with the verdict form to answer questions, with a bunch of rules that we give them, not at the beginning, but at the end. That's crazy, right? I mean, that is crazy. Nobody like says, here's your job. And you say, well, what do I do? Well, just go ahead and do it. And then when you get to the end, we'll tell you what the rules are for the job, right? So if the court isn't, and by the way, I also always ask the court to give the jury at the beginning, not just those bullshit jury instructions that they give, but actually give them the elements of the causes of action that we're arguing for and the elements for the defenses right up front so the jury knows, so at least they have some orientation. Again, I have about probably about a 10% success rate on that because who doesn't want that? The defense, right? The defense doesn't want that because where they live is in confusion. If things are confusing, they are more likely to win. So of course they don't want things to be less confusing. But in any case, this informs me in terms of what I'm going to do in opening. I, it's now my job to try and help these poor jurors who are getting paid nothing, volunteering their time, trying to, and most of whom I think want to do the right thing, right? They want to do their job well. I try and help them up front understand what they're going to hear, what's important, and what they're going to then need to determine at the end. So for instance, if there's an issue as to causation, I'm going to tell them, you're going to hear an instruction about causation. You're going to have to determine whether this thing caused these cause an injury. And here's the evidence you're going to hear in that regard. And you might want to write this down. You might want to write down causation. It's going to be one of the topics you're going to have to make a decision about. Substantial factor. You're going to hear about substantial factor, what it is, what it isn't, right? Now, here's the evidence you're going to hear about substantial factor. So now they've at least been alerted to what is going to happen in this case. And by the way, that all happens after I've told them the story. So I try to pull them in with a story. And then I start using these topic areas to help them 
sort of organize the information that they're going to hear throughout the trial in a way that will help them make a decision at the end and hopefully make a decision at the end that's beneficial to my client. And I, you and I talked the other day. I mean, I'm a, I personally, I'm a fan of the David Ball outline. I think it's a really great place to start. I don't think it's the only way to go. I think there's a lot of different ways to skin that cat. But for people who haven't done it a lot, I think to have a structure to start with is really helpful. And I think his structure makes a lot of sense, both intuitively for jurors, for building credibility with jurors and drawing jurors into your story, but also from a storytelling perspective in terms of what is compelling, right? You need to get that jury on your side from the beginning and build credibility. And his, a big part of what he teaches and that I have always believed in as a public defender and had not changed my mind about is I have to be the most credible person in the courtroom. And the only way to do that is to be completely frank with the jurors on everything. I mean, I, I'll never forget, I had this one case this, when I was doing criminal defense work and my client, my client was accused of a robbery and being in a gang. And he had one eye that did not track with the other eye. And when I first met him, I thought, kind of looks scary because of that eye. I don't know what it was about it, but it made me think he, he kind of looked scary. So I asked the jury about it. So I want you all to take a look at my client. He has one eye that doesn't track with the other eye. Some people say that kind of makes him look like a scary guy. Maybe that makes him more likely to be a gang member. Does anybody feel that way? How do you feel as you sit here and you look at my client, knowing that he's been accused of these crimes? Do you already feel yourself kind of leaning that way, sort of taking the things that you're seeing and fitting them into that narrative that the DA has gotten to start? He's a robber. He's a gang member. If you're honest with them about it, and that hurts, right? Like, and obviously you have to alert your client to this, but I think we're reluctant sometimes to acknowledge things that feel stereotypical, right? Because we don't want to be racist. We don't want to be a misogynist. We don't want to be that person. And so we think if we avoid those issues, then that's evidence that we're not that person. But it actually ends up having this negative effect on our clients. And so we have to acknowledge that that exists in the world and that some people feel this way. And all we're asking you to do today is to be honest about those things. And that's okay. No judgment here today. Judgment-free zone. So in our openings, we need to be the honest brokers. We need to talk about it all. We need to talk about the bad facts in our case and where they fit in. We need to figure out where we start the story. One of the things I learned as a public defender that I think has been really helpful in my civil practice is the prosecutor always wanted to start the story at the alleged crime. That's the point in time they wanted to start. I almost never wanted to start the story there. I wanted the story to start days before, years before, sometimes decades before, because I needed the jury to see how this situation was seen through my client's eyes, who had decades of fear, of being destitute, of being hungry, of being assaulted, whatever it might be. That was who my client was. That was the lens through which he saw the world, which informed what he did or didn't do that day. But they can't see that if I start at the crime and then try to work backward. But if I start at that part of his life and move our way forward, by the time we get to the crime, the jury understands that that's his lens. So 
in our cases, in our civil cases, thinking about where you start the story, David Ball generally is going to be at the point in time when you hit a failure. Well, sometimes that failure is going to happen years before. In the Cooper case, which was a products case, that the failure happened the minute they started manufacturing this thing and distributing this thing and selling this thing. They should have known from day one that the thing had a danger in it. They never bothered to discover it. And as years went by, they just continued to ignore this completely open and obvious danger in the machine. Well, that's a very different story than, you know, he fell off that day because he falls off that day. The jurors are asking themselves, well, maybe it was missing a safety thing or maybe there wasn't any way to know about it. But if you start back in time, if you start at a different place, the jurors then get to that conclusion without you even really having to push it on them. They're the ones who know that the injury is about to happen. They can see it coming. Preloaded. Let's move on to direct examination. Tell us, give us your, your thoughts on the sequencing of witnesses. Yeah, so on my, so now I have the advantage I get to go first. I always had to go second, which I never liked. But going first, I'm starting with the defendant, 90 5% of the time, probably, that's who I want up there first because it's, it's their negligence that brings us to this courtroom. It's their failures, it's their actions or inactions that got us here. I'm almost always starting with them. That's the case I want to put on first. I also want to, and of course, that's not direct exam. That's I'm taking them as a hostile witness and I'm cross-examining them. And again, this comes from my public defender days. Generally speaking, we weren't winning if we were spending a lot of time questioning. It was, you got to get in and you got to get out. You got to make your point and you got to get the heck out of there. And that not only has an effect on the jurors because they can only hold so many things at a time. And so now they're holding that thing you want because you didn't give them too much, but it also builds your credibility. They, you know, one of the things I would notice in some of my cases uh, when I was a public defender is, the jurors would kind of wake up when I would stand up, whether I was doing cross-exam or direct. And I think, and I don't have a lot of empirical proof for this, so it's all anecdotal, but I think it's because they knew I wasn't going to waste their time. I was going to be really efficient with their time, and I was going to get them just the information they needed so that they could make a fair decision. And that's lasted for me in civil. I don't tend to do really long direct exams of my witnesses, my clients. Uh, in the Cooper case, his entire examination, I think, was an hour, maybe slightly longer than an hour. And most of that time, it was not me asking him questions. I think I asked him questions for about 20 minutes. Again, right, these poor people are coming in off the street trying to figure out what's important, what's not, why are they here, why is this witness here? Usually, my first question out of the gate on direct exam is, you know, doctor, if we wanted to understand something about how the brain works when it gets injured and somebody has a TBI, is that something you could help us with? Yes. Why is that? Oh, because I'm a neurologist and I study the brain. Great, right? The jurors are immediately, they know why this guy's here as opposed to, you know, doctor, are you a neurologist? Yes. What's a neurologist? And blah, blah, blah. Where'd you go to school? It's doing the same thing. It's just getting there slightly differently. And I think it has a more engaging effect on the jurors to immediately out of the gate, orient them to why this person's here, and then get in and get out. I don't spend a lot of time on resumes with my experts. My experience has been that they, by and large, they don't care. Some might, but not enough that it makes a huge difference. And I believe 
for all my witnesses, whether I'm doing direct or cross, jurors can only hold at most three thoughts at any one time, right? That's the most in quantity you're going to get. So if you give them 10 items that you think are all great items, they're going to pick which three they're going to remember. Not consciously, but subconsciously, that's how it's going to work. So if you're okay with them picking any three of your 10, okay. But I'd, I'd argue that probably most of the time, you know what your three best are. So why don't you just give them those? Don't worry about the other ones. And then to complement that, I try to have a visual with every single witness. And I want at least one and ideally no more than three. And you already know why I want no more than three, because again, it's all they can handle. Yeah. But those then becomes the thing that goes back into the jury room with them that remind it's the physical reminder of the thing you want them to remember. Ideally, right? That's what it's going to do. Makes sense. Think about how about the before and after witnesses? What's your thoughts on them and how do you prep them and where do you put them into the equation and stuff like that? Yeah, I'm a huge fan of before and after witness. I think they're more important than your experts, particularly the ones that don't have a dog in the fight. I had a case where uh, I went with my clients. I met them at their house and it was just before lunchtime. And I said, you know, you guys want to go grab a bite? We can just talk over lunch. So we all went and we walked from their house a block to this kind of main street and took a right. As we went by that corner, there was a like a convenience store kind of there. And there was a guy behind the counter. And as we went by, my client kind of nodded to the guy and the guy nodded back. And we kept walking. We went to lunch about three blocks down. And at lunch, I said, hey, do you know that guy in the liquor store? He goes, oh, no, not really. But, you know, we pop in there for stuff when we need a bag of chips or whatever. So meeting with client ends, we walk back to his house. I walk back to the corner store. I go in and said, hey, I, I'm the lawyer for that guy that just walked by. Do you know him? He goes, well, yeah, yeah. He comes in here. I said, have you noticed any changes in him? He goes, oh, yeah, big changes. What changes? And then he proceeds to describe what my client was like before and what he's like now. He was not on my client's list of people when I asked him for before and after people. Never came up with this guy, right? And so the point here is, you know, before you get to prep, make sure you've got the right people and make sure you've really gone through with your client. And, and I'm a, again, comes from my public defender days. More often than not, I would try to always meet my clients in their homes. If they weren't in custody, I try to meet them at their home. If they were in custody, I try to meet mom or dad or uncle or whoever was around at their house where the client had lived. And there's just no substitute for it. You find things there, physical things there that you probably won't learn about otherwise from your client. And the same is true when we're dealing with these civil cases, just spending time with your client in their neighborhood can provide dividends that you wouldn't otherwise think of. And so it's better to have a, having the right witnesses is so important. And our clients sometimes have a blind spot to some of these folks that they would never think of whether it's the post person who comes by their house and delivers the mail that they don't really interact with, but that sees them maybe every day or the the barista at the local coffee shop where they used to get, you know, coffee in the morning, whoever it might be, right. You just got to dig deep. Once you get those folks, then my philosophy is again, is less is more. I want them to come in and tell their story about the, the one, two or three things that they have seen about my client that, tells to this jury how different my client was before versus what my client is like now in a way that is going to be easy for the witness 
They're going to be comfortable doing it. I tell these witnesses, look, when you testify, most of the questions are going to be, what's your favorite color? And they're like, they're going to ask me what my favorite color is. I said, no, but it's going to be like that. You could tell me any color. I'm never going to know if you're right or wrong because it's personal to you, right? What you see and what your impression of my client is, is personal to you. Nobody can cross-examine you on that. I mean, they can try, but it's going to fail. So your job is real easy. Just talk about what you saw and how you felt about when you saw my client before this accident happened or after this accident happened, or if you're lucky enough before and after, if they give you both pieces. So part of it is just getting them comfortable with that. And then I try to get them on and off the stand. So most of our witnesses in the Cooper case, for instance, with the exception of one of these witnesses, everybody was 20 minutes or less on the stand. And again, I think that builds you credibility. You're not bringing them in here to try and tell them everything under the sun. They're just giving you a little vignette with no dog in this fight. They're not related to the client. They're just the neighbor. Got it. They're just the barista. They're just the whoever. So let's move on to cross-examination. And we already talked about the cross-examination defendant, but how about experts? Yeah. So with experts, I do, and I've taught a number of trial skills classes where, you know, my trick question is, you know, what is a trial about? And frequently people are like, oh, whoever has the best facts. I'm like, no, I don't think so. I think a trial is about credibility. The jury is sitting there trying to figure out which team they're on. Are they on the defense team or are they on the plaintiff's team? And your best bet for getting them on your team is by being credible and being honest. And the best way, second best way to get them on your team is to show that the other side is not. So with experts on the defense side, I'm trying to find the one or two or maybe three, if I'm lucky, the things that they're saying or doing that lack credibility. And that's it. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time trying to convince them that more than 50% of people who have MTBI still have symptoms after a year. I'm not going to try and convince them of that. I don't need to. I got an article that says that. I just want to know if they bothered to read the article. Right? That's all I want. I, I had one of my mentors when I was a public defender in Contra Costa County. as an amazing attorney. He was a public defender of the year many moons ago, a guy named Oscar Bobro. And Oscar used to tell me, forget the facts. The facts are all bad. Just get to closing argument. Now, that's an overstatement. But the point is, you're not going to convince anybody at any single point in time with a witness. You're simply putting the facts out there that you need so that in closing argument, you can arm your good jurors to go back in that room and do some justice for your client. That's the plan. O is the plan. There can't ever be any other plan because if you do, you're just wasting time and you're losing credibility. So have you read this article? Okay, you haven't read this article. Well, I already established with my expert that this article is the most recent article on MTBIs and shows that 50% of people still have symptoms a year after they were injured. This guy who's coming in and saying our client's faking it hasn't even read this article. That's argument. That's happening in my closing. So my plan with cross-exam, and again, now I sound like a broken record. It comes from my days as a public defender. You're mostly cross-examining a police officer, a toxicologist, a pathologist, somebody who basically works for the system, right? They're not on your team. You are not going to win. You're not going to convince them of anything. So you got to get in and get out. 
my philosophy hasn't changed. I do the same thing now with the defense experts. I get in, I get out. I try to make my one, two, maybe three points if I'm lucky and sit down and trust that I've already built the case in my case in chief. And I'm going to come back to all of this in closing. I just got to be patient. No matter how frustrating it may be to have them spout their bullshit. <laughs> You're not going to get them to recant and admit that you were right no. and they are paid whores that will say anything for money. And truly, like, they want to come clean. It's like a confessional up there. Perry Mason moments are not happening in the courtrooms that you're in. You're just not that good, huh, Craig? I'm not that good. You're work, but, you're, but maybe you're working <laughs> towards it, though, because you're constantly striving to improve, and that's what's important. So now we're at the closing argument. And that's people's, a lot of people's favorite part of the trial. Maybe, I don't know. But tell us about your thoughts and philosophies when it comes to closing and getting the money. I think closing is both the easiest part of the trial and the hardest. It's the easiest because you should know at that point, you're pretty clear about what you're going to say. In my mind, you should have known what you were going to say before you ever picked a jury. And hopefully you've just been laying the groundwork for all of that through your trial, right? I mean, it's kind of easy. If you start with a verdict form, you say, here are all the facts I need to prove each of these things. And you work your way backwards, you know exactly what you need all of your witnesses to say. So you're just building to that closing argument. I think it's the hardest. Because we think we're trying to convince the jurors of the rightness of our position. And I don't think we are, or we should be. We shouldn't be. What we should be doing, I think, is believing that we have already convinced them, those that are convincible. And we are now arming those people who already feel our way to go back, when they go back in that jury room, to convince their fellow jurors. They have a much more likely chance of convincing the ones on the fence of the rightness of our position than we ever will, because we appear biased. But those people sitting in that box with them, they share something in common. They all just got picked off the street, right? None of them probably wanted to be there initially. So they have more credibility than we have. So we just need to help them. When somebody says, blah, 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 you remind them, bing, bang, boom, right? These are the things that says the opposite. So I think that's job number one. A job number two is when it comes to money is to try to help them see the context in which our case sits. Where do they fit in that case? And I'm a big fan of trying to make the jurors into heroes, giving them the opportunity to be heroes, right? And there's been lots of books written about this. And again, this was something that I practiced when I was a criminal defense lawyer that there's only one protection for the Constitution. It's only one. I mean, they're words on a piece of paper. If those words mean something, they actually mean something. They only mean it because jurors said it's going to happen. So this is their opportunity to say whether we are a nation of laws that actually follows the Constitution and believes in these things or because it's convenient, because it's easy, because we have our own personal biases, we throw them to the wind, right? So the same thing is happening in our jury trials where we're trying to help the jurors understand how they can be a hero, but they only can be a hero in righting this wrong that we brought to them by giving full and fair compensation. Partial compensation doesn't do it. It doesn't protect any of us. So their job is to see the case through a lens where they are part of the scene. 
they are part of this thing. So as an example, you know, in a products case, I'm talking about how we all get safer over time because bad actors get hold, held to account for a full and fair measure of the damages they've caused, thereby protecting other people in the future. So talking about damages, I'm going to shift topics. So we're going to finish up on closing and rebuttal. But June 5th through 8th, we're doing a live conference in Huntington Beach, California at the Pasea Hotel. And I know you're going to come down and teach at that conference and you want to speak and you're going to teach on damages. So tell us a little bit about what that presentation is going to be about and how have you thought about this and, and why you picked that subject? Sure. Yeah. I, well, I picked it because I think it's the piece of most cases that I think is hardest for most people. Certainly for me, it is the most challenging piece of any case. My own philosophy, I mean, right, if you just sort of put yourself in my shoes for a minute, right, I came from a place where I'm just trying to get an element to be found to not have been proven beyond a reasonable doubt and get a not guilty verdict. To now, I'm trying to prove the whole case. And then on top of that, trying to deliver to a jury what I believe is full and fair compensation for the harms that my client has suffered, right? That's a whole mental shift that I struggled with greatly in the early years. And then, you know, layer on top of that, that there's joint and several liability for economic damages, but there aren't for non-economic damages. And how does that play into the calculus if you have multiple defendants or if you have comparative fault? And, but let's put all that aside for a minute. Just the how do you do it piece. I used to go from, I'm going to anchor with my economics, with my pocketbook losses, and then I'm going to use multipliers for my personal losses, my non-economic losses. And that worked okay. It wasn't terrible. But I do think it limited the recovery. And I think what I perceived to be happening and what other plaintiff's lawyers that I respected who tried a lot of cases shared with me was that jury is assuming the number you're giving them for the personal losses is overinflated. And so they're going to cut that number. So you always have to make sure that number is super big because they're going to cut it, maybe in half, maybe by a third, who knows. So that was the kind of the working theory under which I operated for a long time. And I finally decided that I'm going to stop doing that. And instead, I'm going to flip the lens through which I want the jury to see this thing with a different philosophy. Now, it, granted, these last two cases I had were both, the products case and the civil rights case, were both non-economic damage only cases. Just prior to these two, I had had, an, I had four trials back to back. And the first two had econs and non-econs. The last two had only, only non-econs. But in those two cases, I said, I'm going to figure out what I think is a fair minimum. And I'm going to figure out that fair minimum, as we talked about earlier in this podcast, by saying, what, if this was a job, who would take the job? And if nobody would take the job or my client wouldn't take the job, then we know that's a fair number. So instead of giving them a big number and assuming they're going to cut it down, I'm going to try and pick a number as a starting point and then talk about all the numbers above it and their job in trying to select those numbers over time. So for instance, somebody's injured on date X, we have trial at date Y, and they're going to live to date Z, right? From X to Y, we know the minimum is a million and a half per year, but it could be as high as five million. Now the jury's job is to figure out each of those years between X and Y, 
what the number is above 1.5. And they could do each year independently, or they could say, well, some years it'll be five, some years it'll be two. There might be a year in there where it's 1.5. On average, we think it's going to be two and a half. Okay, that's fair. They could do it that way. And then they're going to do the same thing from Y to Z. And that's how they're going to get to the reasonable number and the fair, full and fair compensation for those personal losses. So I did that in both of my most recent two cases. And again, I, I always caution people, uh, when we win, it doesn't mean, or when our clients have success, the kind of success we hope for, that doesn't mean that we did it right. Probably means we didn't screw up in a major way, but it doesn't necessarily mean that what we did worked or will work again in the future. It's just one data point. In this case, I've got two data points. So it's a little bit better, but still kind of a cautionary tale. I don't think anybody ought to say, well, this will work every time. But I think there's enough there now to say, well, this seems to resonate with people because in both cases, the jury compensated my clients more than that minimum number I had given them. So by simply, instead of using the old system where I come up with a big number, maybe it's a multiplier of economic damages, or maybe it's just a big number, and I assume they're going to cut it down. I tried to create a floor that we could all agree on and let them work from there to figure out what the number is above. Now, in the civil rights case, it was just barely above. In the products case, it was, you know, I'd say it was significantly above. Instead of one and a half, they gave two million for past and two and a half million for future, roughly, you know, give or take. So I think there's something there. Now, having said all that, going back to what I said earlier, you know, I think a trial is about credibility. And I don't think that this system works of creating a floor without the jury trusting you. They have to feel like you're an honest broker with them. And so that takes being honest with them throughout the whole trial, number one. And number two, as we discussed earlier, feeling the number that you're giving them. And that's again, harder than it sounds sometimes. Yeah. How about rebuttal? So we got through the closing. The defense does their song and dance, which you know is coming. It's not like you're like, oh, what a surprise. They're going to argue that my client's not hurt that bad, or it's somebody else's fault, or that they should have known, or that they're exaggerating. So yeah, is rebuttal something you have kind of prepared before the defense does their closing? And it's just a matter of adjusting? Yes is the short answer. And every case is a little bit different. There are some cases I've had where I know what I'm going to say in rebuttal, regardless of what they say. I know what I want to finish with. There are other cases where I'm not so sure what they're going to focus on. Specifically, there might be six, seven, eight issues that I know they want to talk about, and I'm not sure which ones they're going to hit the most. And so I'll create kind of what I call pods. So it's a little pod argument on issue A or issue B or issue C. And then I can kind of take them and move them around in my notes for my rebuttal, depending on what they do. Having said that, I still know what I'm finishing with in my rebuttal every single time. And that's the number. I'm always finishing with the number. The number. Let's have a good way to finish. And I think that brings us to the end of the trial and the end of our on-trial podcast, Mr. Peters. So I just want to say that uh, we spent a lot of time chit-chatting and maybe it has to be the fact that you're a former public defender and hopefully, you know, as I shared with you, I had this vision when I was in Costa Rica doing ayahuasca of what my meaning for my, but, you know, since I don't have any kids and all that stuff, so it's like we're always trying to figure out what our purpose in life is. And I think mine is to build because I spent so many years in the court and I know how hard it is for these criminal defense lawyers and public defenders. I've never been a public defender, but I felt like one based upon my pay and the clients that I had because I was never one of those like, I call them like 
white glove criminal defense lawyers that get $100,000 for a, a felony trial. And I'm like, Jesus, that's more than I make all year. How do you do that? I mean, because they were just good marketers, right? I had friends like that. They were killing it back in Michigan. I'm just struggling. But, you know, to develop and design this program to train criminal defense lawyers and public defenders, which I'm really looking forward to. And hopefully, and it's so great because like, because when we started our conversation, I had no idea that you were a public defender for so many years and even a trainer of public defenders. So he's been more insight because, you know, so it's one thing to be able to do something. It's a whole nother thing to be able to teach others to do it you know, and to empower others. And, you know, we can make a change one client at a time, but if we can teach others and we can share our wisdom with others, then we can make systemic, maybe societal change. You just never know how big the change can be if you, you know, start hitting the dominoes and they just never know until you put it out there. So I'm, I'm excited for that to happen and hopefully to be a bigger part of that. But we'll I know that you got a lot of things pressing on your time, but Steve, with all those things pressing, you managed to get a lot done, which is impressive. Well, it's great what you're doing. I think, I mean, public defenders need all, and criminal defense lawyers generally need all the support they can get. I mean, they are fighting an uphill battle and obviously I have a soft spot in my heart for them. And I still kind of think of myself as a public defender, uh, despite the fact I'm a long time now civil, civil attorney, but yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome what you're doing. I'm looking forward to it. And I'm looking forward to, March 12th and getting going in depth on the Cooper trial. So hopefully we'll see lots of people at that one. And I know it'll be a great learning experience. And, uh, and the winter next trial, you got a couple coming up. When are those? Yeah, I've got a, a preference trial on April 2nd in San Francisco for an elderly woman who suffered a brain injury uh, on a muni bus when they took off before she'd been seated. And then a week later, I'm in... Alameda County for a woman who was T-boned when a, there was a, it was a police chase and she was T-boned by the person who was being chased by the police and ended up with a really all kinds of internal injuries where ultimately they took out a significant portion of her bowel and she now has short bowel syndrome, which is, if you don't know about it, trust me, you don't want it. It's a miserable existence. So yeah, those are the next, next two coming up. All right. Well, hopefully maybe in, um, May, we'll get some other case analysis on those to be fresh in your mind, fresh off the presses. All right. Thanks, Craig. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. And, been, and it's been great. You know you better, too. I just got to be honest with that. That is one of my favorite parts of this job is like the great lawyers I get to meet and I get to know and get to learn from because that's my favorite part. All right. I appreciate getting to learn from you as well. It's a, it's a great thing you're doing. So I wish you all the success. Thanks a lot. Ready to train with the Titans and set records with your verdicts? Register for our live conferences and boot camps at triallawyersuniversity.com. Start getting your reps in before the big event by going to tluondemand.com to gain instant access to live lectures, case analysis, and skills training videos from the trial lawyer champions you love and respect, as well as pleadings, transcripts, PowerPoints, and notes for a roadmap to victory. Join the group that continues to get extraordinary results. Trial Lawyers University. Produced and powered by LawPods.